0: Well, good morning. Some of you know what this is. I know Dale knows what it is. You can borrow it after the service if you still need one. Metal detector. Uh, My family grew up with these. I have three brothers. All of us always had metal detectors. Uh, Some were nicer than others. My older brother had one that could detect the type of metal. Therefore, you weren't digging up bottle caps and things like this. But we used to love to do this. We were looking for treasure that was buried beneath the surface. And one of the things we found out as we'd sweep on the surface of the ground is that when something was buried deep, it usually was more valuable. I mean, oftentimes we would find things like bottle caps and things, and at the top of the soil, you'd find pennies or dimes or quarters or whatever, but they, used, they usually were ones that were newer coins, but if you dug down about six inches, you'd end up with older coins, wheat pennies, and ones that were worth sometimes a little bit of money. And on one occasion, one of my brothers, I believe, found even somebody's wedding ring. We've been doing this series the last few weeks related to the story of us. It's really the story of the Bible. And it's 4,000 years of history. That's what the Bible is. It's 4,000 years of human history and God's intersection with that history. But, as I mentioned last week, it's really only one main story. Though it was written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years of history and written by people from different backgrounds on different continents, it is really just one book and one main story, and it's based on a plan God came up with to fix what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. In fact, before God even created Adam and Eve, he knew they would sin, and he came up with a plan. His own son, Jesus, would come into this world and die in our place and for our sin. And so last week, I talked about the fact that God's plan was a person. But the plan is a little bigger than that. It was really a plan of how he was going to save the whole world through that person. And there are stories in the Bible that have that story found deeply buried within it. You know, 4,000 years of biblical history, you realize that uh, a number of stories were included in the Bible, and of course, most were left out. And you wonder, why did God choose to include this story, but not this one, and and why? Why did He select certain ones? And I wanna suggest today that the story of God sending His Son to be the Savior of the world and that through faith in Him, we can have eternal life, that story is embedded or buried in the other stories. And if you dig deeply, you'll begin to see it. Now, this morning, I'm going to cover 4,000 years of history. Uh, I'm just telling you that ahead of time to get your seatbelts on. We're going to go fairly quickly through the story. Some will be familiar to some of you. Some of them maybe will not. But I want to demonstrate that there's a story buried in the story and that the richness of a lot of the Bible stories is missed on us because we just casually read the story and don't realize there's a story buried in the story. Now, in order to do this, we need to start with Adam and Eve. And so I believe the Bible story begins 4,000 B.C. I think God created Adam and Eve in 4,000 B.C. So about 6,000 years ago when we began talking about the story of Adam and Eve, how God created them with the ability to choose for or against God, I mentioned last week that I don't believe God created evil in this world. He created the potential for evil when he created people with the ability to say yes or no to him. But he knew that they'd say no. He knew that they would sin against him and God came up with this plan at the very beginning. And so you remember when Adam and Eve sinned against God, suddenly um, their eyes were opened. Suddenly they experienced for the first time in their life, shame. I, I I still wonder what that moment was like when Adam looked at his wife through a different lens and said, You don't have any clothes on. I mean it's like they didn't realize it up to this point. There's just an innocence, but sin came into the world and suddenly it kind of changed everything. Shame came into the world and they, as you know, began to cover themselves. And they used fig leaves, whatever they could find, but God came in with another solution. Found in Genesis 3.21, it says the Lord God made clothing out of skins skins for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. And you realize God, uh, one of the things he does and part of the story is that he clothes our shame. He's able to remove and forgive our sin, he also removes our shame. But as I mentioned last week, in order to clothe Adam and Eve, he had to kill some animals. Our creator shed the first blood In order to clothe them, and I believe this was the introduction of the sacrificial system. And if you read the Old Testament at all, you see they're sacrificing all the way through it. You say, when did that start? Adam and Eve, when they were first clothed. And then I went to the story of Cain and Abel, Again, the years about 4,000 BC. And we read the story in Genesis 4, how both of them offered sacrifices to God. Abel brought an animal, and he killed it and shed its blood. Cain brought fruit or vegetables. And God wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 11.4, we didn't look at this verse last week, but Hebrews 11.4, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. It was a better sacrifice. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. Cain had no idea, this principle, that the penalty for sin is death. That's what God had told Adam and Eve. And therefore, a death was required. And so this sacrificial system, but he thought, I'll bring what I want. You know, I'm a farmer, I'll bring what I want. But as the expression goes, you cannot get blood out of a turnip. There's there's nothing that could save a person from the offer of those fruits and vegetables. And so he got it wrong. But I want to continue the story here today, and about 1,900 years is going to pass, and God tapped a guy named Abraham, or as we first meet him, he's called Abram. And God, after 1,900 years of humanity, began to unfold this plan that he had in his mind to eventually bring his son into the world to die on a cross in our place and for our sin. But he chose this guy named Abraham through whom he was gonna have a family line from which Jesus would eventually come. The problem was when God first met Abram, he was 75 years old, his wife was 65, and they were incapable of having children. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15. The year is 2100 BC, about. And we read in Genesis chapter 15, this is the second time where God approached Abram and it says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now here we get this, picture immediately of, of a God that provides righteousness on the basis of faith. This is a key point here in the whole Bible story, that the way people get right with God is not through good deeds, but it's by believing God. When it says Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness, that word credited is an accounting term. It means to deposit to the account of. In the Bible, in many places, the idea of sin is depicted as being like a debt. It's like a debt that you owe. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible translates the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. You remember that? You forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's like you owe a debt. You do something wrong to someone else, it's like you owe them now. That's kind of the spirit of this thing. And Abraham, like the rest of us, was a sinner, and it's like his account was overdrawn. You know, you have a checkbook, if you write, you write checks, but you don't have the money? That's what sin is like, and suddenly you're overdrawn. But this verse says, Abraham believed God and a deposit was made to his account called righteousness, and that is how we get right with God. And Abraham had faith to believe that even though he didn't know how it would happen, since he'd never had any children and both he and his wife were old, he trusted God. And that is how people get right with God. But let's continue the story. 25 years would pass. Isaac, his son, was born when he was 100. His wife was 90. It's, I mean, his, his name, Isaac, it means laughter. It's like this ridiculous thing, this grandma's having this baby here named Isaac. But God fulfilled his promise, and this boy was born, and this boy grew up, and in his late teens or early 20s, God asked Abraham to do something that seemed completely unreasonable. The story is found in Genesis 22, beginning in verse two. It says, take your son, God said, "'Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, "'go to the land of Moriah and offer him there "'as a burnt offering on one of the mountains "'I will tell you about.' "'So Abraham got up early in the morning, "'saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son, Isaac. "'He split wood for a burnt offering "'and set out to go to the place God had told him about. "'On the third day, Abraham looked up "'and saw the place in a distance.' Abraham took the wood, beginning in verse 6, took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, "'My father,' and he replied, "'Here I am, my son.' Isaac said, "'The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering?' Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. What God asked him to do was wholly unreasonable. The gods of some of the other nations supposedly were demanding child sacrifice, but God, I mean, our God, the God, creator of the heavens and earth would never require such a thing. Yet God said, do it, and Abraham immediately obeyed. The wording of this story is on purpose. When God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, John, in the Gospel of John, uses those same words as Jesus appeared on the scene from heaven. This is my son, my son whom I love. Most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world, he gave his one, his only son. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. As they make their way up this particular mountain, it says that Abraham took the wood and put it on his back. So Isaac carried upon his back the, own, the instrument of his own death, just like Jesus did a cross. And this took place in a particular place, God said. I want you to do it here, not here, not here, not here, not here, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah goes by another name, or part of Mount Moriah is called Mount Calvary. I believe that Isaac was almost sacrificed in the exact spot where Jesus eventually was sacrificed. Now, if you know the story, you know that there's a difference between God sacrificing his own son whom he loved and Abraham sacrificing the son whom he loved because as Abraham got ready to slay his son, God stayed his hand. Don't do it. And God provided another animal to die in the place of Isaac. But when it came to God's own son, he did not stop. He went the distance. It was all meant to be a picture, though. All along, it was meant to be a prophecy. A lot of the stories in the Bible are prophecies. This section ends in Genesis 22, this story in verse 14. It says, Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it's said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What is it? The sacrifice that saves us. And God is the one who provided it for us. But we fast forward the story. We come to a young man named Joseph. The years are now approximately 1900 BC. Abraham, of course, had his son named Isaac, and Isaac had some... uh, a child named Jacob, and Jacob was a guy that was renamed by God, Israel. So when you think of the nation of Israel, he was named after the grandson of Abraham, but Israel had 12 boys, 12 sons, and the 11th one was named Joseph, and a lot of the book of Genesis focuses on this Joseph. Why? Because it's a picture again of God's son being sacrificed for us. The 11, or 10 of the boys, they were older than Joseph, were off some distance away from where they were staying, tending the sheep. They had gone where they could find grass. And so Joseph's older brothers were all a ways away. And so their father, Israel, said to Joseph, please go see how your brothers are doing. And so Joseph went and it took a while to get to them. But when the brothers saw Joseph in the distance, we read, they decided to kill him. They hated, I mean, if you think you have a problem with your brothers or sisters, his 10 brothers wanted to kill him. They hated him, and there are some reasons why they hated him. When he showed up at the camp, though, they grabbed him, they removed his outer garment, they threw him in this pit, an empty well, and were planning on killing him when at just the right moment, some traders happened to be passing by, and someone thought, you know, let's sell him for some silver. You're starting to see how the stories kind of line up a little bit. Let's get some money out of him, let's not just kill him, and so they drug him out of the pit, and they sold him to these Midianite traders who were on their way to Egypt, and and Joseph ends up in Egypt. And he serves as a slave, but he's so faithful that he's raised up in this guy's household, a guy named Potiphar. Everything was going great for a while, but then Potiphar's wife suddenly decided she'd try to entice him. And she went after him, but he kept rebuffing her. I won't do it, I won't do it. And then one occasion came along where it was just him and her in the place. I imagine she had dismissed all the other servants this is my chance. And when he saw that she was trying to entice him, she, he ran and left his garment in her hands. When Potiphar came home, Potiphar's wife said, your servant came to rape me, basically. And Joseph was thrown into prison. And so you get this young man. He was 17 when he was sold as a slave. Now he's in prison, Joseph spent the 13 best years of his life as a slave or a prisoner. I'd like to think by the way that my best years are ahead but really from 17 to 30 that's about as good as it gets. After 13 years though in this life of being a slave and then being a serv- or servant and then being a prisoner, became evident that God had given Joseph a special gift. He had the ability to interpret dreams. This was something that God had revealed to Joseph, by the way, earlier on in the story. Joseph had a gift from God of interpreting dreams, and, and one day, Pharaoh had a dream, and, and Joseph, at the time, was in Pharaoh's prison, but jo- the Pharaoh had this dream, and no one could interpret it. And then someone who knew Joseph said, hey, there's this guy in prison, and he can interpret dreams. And, And Joseph was cleaned up and brought in the presence of Pharaoh, and he properly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And at that point, this young man was promoted to second in command in all of Egypt, probably the greatest kingdom in the world at the time, and Joseph became the number two guy. What specifically God had revealed to Joseph, though, was this, that there was gonna be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph came up with a plan. He said to Pharaoh, let's, hey, let's collect all the food while we get this bumper crop, and then when, when the famine hits, we'll have food stored away. And so they stored so much food away, they couldn't even keep track of it. It was in all the cities throughout Egypt, all this food, and then the famine hit And one year of famine was fine, but the second year, it began to impact the whole region. The whole area was impacted by famine, and it reached all the way to Joseph's family. And his father, Israel, said to his 10 brothers, go to Egypt, get some food for us. I hear there's food there. And they end up standing in the very presence of the guy that they had sold into slavery. They didn't recognize him. He was now 30. He looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. They didn't recognize him. But if you read the story, you know in the course of time, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. He said, this famine thing has just started. It's gonna gonna last for several more years. You guys need to come here. I'll take care of you. I'll feed you. And so a group of about 74 made their way to Egypt and were taken care of by Joseph. In time, Israel the father died and the brothers became incredibly nervous. Joseph's gonna take his revenge, but the story ends in this way in Genesis 50 and verse 19. Joseph said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many that's exactly what Jesus came to do his name means Savior Joseph is one of the few people in the Bible to whom no sins are attributed I'm not suggesting to you that he didn't sin I think God deliberately left out any reference to sin because Joseph is what's called a type of Christ he did nothing wrong his righteousness is what you see throughout the story and yet he was arrested and thrown in prison and he became a savior. Someone has noted the, different, or the, the comparison between Joseph and Jesus. Both were loved by their father. That's emphasized. Both were sent to their brethren. Both were rejected by their brethren. Both were falsely accused. Both were put into prison. Both were exalted after suffering. Both offered forgiveness. Both became saviors to their people. But some time would pass, a little over 400 years, and we come to the clearest picture of Jesus, I think, in the Old Testament, through the story of a man named Moses. The Israelites started, when they moved there, a small group of about 74, but 430 years later, they had grown to what many feel was a size of two million people. The Egyptians became scared to death that these Jewish people would turn on them. And so while they still had the power to do so, they enslaved the Israelites. And for many years, the Israelites were enslaved and they cried out to God and God sent to deliver a name Moses. But Moses is a picture. It's a real story, but God uses Moses as a picture of the day when he was gonna send his own son. In fact, Moses himself said, Somebody's coming in the future who's going to be like I am. Someone who performed miracles. Someone who taught the people, bringing them God's rules, God's laws. It would be Jesus. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let the, the, our people go. And Pharaoh said, no, and God performed Miracles at the hand of Moses, nine plagues, horrible things came upon the Egyptians. But the 10th one is the start of the picture, the story within the story. The 10th one is that God said, the firstborn in every household in the land will die. The firstborn son in every household will die. Among the Jewish people and the Egyptians, that might surprise some of you. But the firstborn son would die. It's just that God gave the Israelites a remedy through what's called the Passover lamb. Even to this day, the Jewish people are sacrificing or or celebrating a Passover lamb. They were told that this last plague, this horrible plague, you're gonna be set free. But what you need to do on the night, this night, is that the angel of death is gonna pass through. Don't wanna get into what that looks like and you need to take a lamb a year old lamb or a goat and and you need to shed its blood and apply the blood to the doorpost in the top of the house and presumably by the way the blood would drip down it's a i think it's a cross and you apply it to the blood of your house and when the angel of death passes by he'll pass over that house all who are inside will live if anyone chose not to do this if anyone did not believe among israelites or the egyptians they would die But this nation did it, and they applied the blood to the doorposts of the house. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 in the New Testament, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. It was always a picture of Jesus. Only if you take refuge in Jesus, and the blood of the lamb is applied to the door of your heart, you, you live forever, not just that night. The Israelites that night were freed from their slavery, which is what Jesus does for us, and then they began their journey. And for 40 years, they were in a desert. And they called out to God for food, and God sent them manna from heaven. The word manna means, what is it? It's like bread, bread from heaven. But you might remember that when Jesus walked the earth, what did he say, I'm I'm the bread of life. Jesus was having a disagreement with the religious leaders over his claim to be the bread of life. They had seen him perform an amazing miracle of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. And believe it or not, if you read the story, you realize what the religious leaders did was they went to Jesus and said, you know, you, I know you performed this amazing miracle, but you're, no, you're nothing like Moses. Moses fed the people for 40 years. You gave them one meal. Don't you feed us for 40 years and we'll believe in you. That's what they said to Jesus. And Jesus said this in John chapter 6, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the man of your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. You think Moses is a big deal because he fed people for 40 years? If people eat this bread, they'll live forever. Jesus was greater than Moses. The Israelites needed water, and God allowed water to come out of a rock, but the rock was a picture of Jesus. So was the living water. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. All of it was meant to be a picture, if they had eyes to see it. The Israelites continued to complain all the time. If you read it, it's like they're a bunch of big babies, always complaining about this, complaining about that. At one point, God sent poisonous snakes among them, and some of you probably have to wrestle with that. Why would God do that? But the people were dying, and they called out to Moses, save us, and Moses called out to God, and God said, if you want the people to live, if they've been bitten by a snake, what what you need to do is you make a a snake out of bronze, which is the medal of judgment in the Bible, and you put it up and put it on a pole and raise it up high and everyone who just looks will be healed, everybody that just looks. As Jesus began his public ministry, he had a conversation with the religious leader and in John 3:14, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life, you see again, He was gonna die in our place and for our sin. And you see, again, the requirement's the same. How did they get healed in the Old Testament? They just needed to believe. If they said, well, if I look up there, how could that possibly heal me? They'd experience no healing. You had to believe and look. And they looked upon Jesus. But let me very briefly cover a couple more, a few more. They enter the Promised Land. The first city they were gonna attack was a city called Jericho joshua now is the one that's leading the nation of israel and he sent some spies and these spies were actually welcomed into the home of this prostitute named rahab and she protected the spies and she took care of them but she asked the spies this when you come and attack the land and by the way she acknowledged the god of israel rahab did but when you come and you attack the land Will you save me and my family? And they said, yes, if you hang from your window a scarlet thread, you have to mark the heart, the house with a scarlet-colored rope. And when the Israelites came in, you remember this was a battle they didn't fight. It was a picture of the fact God was going to fight their battles for them. They circled the city many times. The walls fell down, but part of the wall did not fall down. It's where Rahab and her family were, and God saved them on the basis of the scarlet rope. Of course, this woman, Rahab, became a descendant of Jesus himself. We fast forward to 1000 BC now, where we come to David. David was a shepherd, David was a king, David was a descendant of Jesus, and there are all kinds of pictures there. But just like David, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And God promised to David that one day a king will come from you, and it would be Jesus, whose parents were from the line of David. And fast forward to one last story here. It's 800 B.C. Of course, the Bible, our Old Testament ends about 400 B.C. But God raised up several prophets to save the people. One of the prophets that was around about 800 B.C. was a guy named Jonah. Jonah was sent by God to go to the city of Nineveh where the people were particularly wicked. God said to Jonah, you preach to them. Jonah refused to do it. He jumped in a boat. He went exactly the opposite direction. But God knew what he was doing. God caused a storm to rise up. The sailors of the boat were scared to death. They found out that it was probably because Jonah was disobeying God and they threw him overboard and the storm stopped, then they knew. Jonah was swallowed by a fish, and he was there for three days. Somebody say, did that really happen? Well, Jesus thought so. He was in the belly of a fish for three days. Why on earth would God do something like that? I mean, of all the ways to rescue someone, why that? Well, Jesus used it, of course, in Matthew 12 and verse 40. He said, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh were saved because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But this is a picture of Jesus who can deliver us if we put our faith in him. The story, these stories, hidden in all these Stories, I could go for hours on the different stories, look at the pictures, realize what God has included. Again, the two main applications here are this. Number one, if, if you never put your trust in Christ, God did not come up with many ways to get right with God. There was one way and he didn't want people to miss it. Now, if people want to just kind of casually look at the Bible and just look at the stories and say it's kind of interesting, they they might miss some of this stuff, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's God's plan. There was one plan to send His only Son into the world that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, would not suffer eternal judgment, but would have eternal life. Have you come to a point where you put your trust in Christ? And for the rest of us, I, I hope that as we look at these things, number one, you'd have greater confidence in your faith to realize, you know, this is, you just can't make this up. I've read stories from all kinds of different authors that lived in different centuries, that lived on different continents, that had different professions. It's one story. It's all woven all the way through. I'm just saying that I think only God could do that. It should strengthen our faith. But I also encourage you to look for the clues because I think they're found everywhere. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who came into this world specifically to die in our place and for the things we've done wrong, the one who's able to give eternal life to those who will believe in him, Lord. We just recognize we need a deliverer, a savior. None of us can get right through good deeds or just working at it. We cannot merit or earn eternal life. We can't fix our sinfulness. We'll just continue to sin. We need a savior. And we thank you that you loved us so much as to send your son, Jesus. And thank you how you revealed that plan throughout the pages of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we wanna trust you more and more and love you more and more because of this amazing plan you had for us so that we could dwell in your presence forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.